How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. I'm Hannah Seymour, and we're so glad that you're here today with us. We started a series last week on discipleship, and today will be our first interview with a guy named Dan Spader, who we'll tell you more about in a moment. But Dad, when you and Dan were talking before we really started recording the interview, y'all were talking about some books that had a major impact on your life in thinking about discipleship. Tell me about that. You know, a number of years ago, Kent Hughes, who's known as an expositor, actually wrote a topical book called Disciplines of a Godly Man. And Dan and I were chatting about that book because in the end of it, he interviewed, I'm going to say, a dozen uh, Christian leaders at the time. And one of the questions um, that he asked was their bedside books. And many of them mentioned a book by A.B. Bruce called Training of the Twelve, written in 18, I want to say 12. Oh, wow. Alexander Balmain Bruce. (laughs) 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 And uh, and I remember Dr. Hendricks referred to this many times in my seminary training. was, gentlemen, read A.B. Bruce, The Training of the Twelve. And uh, I probably started it, and I may have even read it in seminary, but I can't (laughs) prove it. (laughs) A lot of books in seminary. But after seminary, um, I assembled a group of guys in D.C., and they were uh, five of the smartest men I knew, Harvard MBAs. Uh, One guy was, um, uh, he's a policy writer, brilliant guy. And uh, we met every Thursday morning at 4 a.m. in the morning. Oh, gosh. For a summer, <laughs> for 12 <laughs> weeks. This was not for the, the faint of heart. <laughs> but these five guys and I met together, and we went through that book, Training of the Twelve. And it stood out as a landmark book for me, for that group. Uh, one of those gentlemen with the Lord of the State, but we still talk about the weeks we spent studying the Training of the Twelve. Anyway, that said, as a backdrop, it was an extraordinary text. Still is. It's very difficult to read in, in the language of the time. He's verbose, but you find on like every fourth paragraph oh wow that's a sentence i gotta think about for like an hour (laughs) so if you're really ambitious the training of the 12 by a b bruce it's actually public domain you can just find a pdf online or yeah you can read it online so what do you use today? It doesn't sound like you're using that book on not, the regular not so much with small groups. A regular group. So, <laughs> so what are you using today when you're uh, with groups or individuals and discipling folks? You know, your mom and I uh, used two primary texts. We use Hendricks' Living by the Book, which yep. is a Bible study methodology book. Yep. There's a workbook and then let's call it a textbook. And that really is the fruition of his over 60 years of teaching people how to study the Bible. So it's paint by numbers. You read a chapter, you do the exercises, and in the strength of that book, his son Bill Hendricks updated it, and they took a workbook approach to say, let's give people in the Bible uh, 15 to 20 to 30 minutes a day on an ongoing basis. Yeah. And that really is the beginning of all this. If, if we can get people in the Word on their own. And yeah. then the second thing we bolt on is a handbook of theology. The one we use is written by Paul Enns mm-hmm. called the Moody handbook of theology it's a little more difficult to read but not really that difficult once you get in the groove Mm -hmm. 
And so the idea for us, Hannah, is is can we teach people how to study the Bible yep. and then how to think critically about what they're studying? Because right. just Bible study alone will not make you a disciple. Right. You've got to integrate it somehow with thinking theologically, thinking biblically. So that's our approach. It's not perhaps the most streamlined or the best approach to making disciples. And then I would add to that you have to spend one-on-one time with people. Right. That you can't, a group is great. We have a group. We have, what, 14 or 16 in our group. But it's the one-on-one time that I will pursue those individuals. Mm-hmm. And then I can talk to them about what's going on in their life. Mm-hmm. And that's where, as an, a little older person, you hope you can disciple and encourage other people in their faith. Sure. Well, our guest today has also written several books on discipleship, how Jesus discipled, how we can use his example as a model for what we're doing today. Tell us about our guest today. Dan Spader is a remarkable individual. He both founded and directed Sun Life Ministries and then served as a consultant to some 18 plus denominations on youth materials and church leadership. He's a prolific writer. Uh, The book we're talking about in the interview is his book, The Four Chair Discipling and Walking as Jesus Walked, among other books that he's put in his arsenal. And it's neat right now to see what Dan's doing because he's focused primarily on one very large church, uh, taking them through a process of making disciples. And I think our listeners will find it interesting how he defines a disciple, which to me was a neat caveat, uh, how he said, okay, this is how you really measure uh, what a disciple is like if, and we'll let him explain that in the broadcast. Yeah, well, let's jump right into the middle of your conversation where you have just asked Dan, why is it so hard for us to get the discipleship concept? Why is it so hard for us to get the discipleship concept, Dan? Well, I think we're like in a four-chair book that I laid out. I lay out the disciple-making process from the life of Christ, uh, the four challenges of Jesus. Come and see, follow me, follow me, I'll make you fishers men, and go and bear fruit. That's how he masterfully developed his men. First two steps or challenge or chairs, I call them the metaphor, are come and see and follow me. And those are the easier um, challenges. And I think the church in North America is kind of modeled after that, the, the harder level of teaching people to reproduce, which was a genius of Christ's strategy in my mind, uh, is harder to do. It takes more intentional, focused work. It cannot happen by meetings, by preaching. It has to be the intentional uh, work of investing in a few. Uh, you look at Jesus. I, I love to say how you find him from a year and a half in, you find him 17 times at the masses, huh. but 46 times with the few. And uh, you don't have to be real smart to figure that one out. <laughs> Jesus, his mission was not to reach the world. Uh, his mission was to make disciples capable of reaching the world. And that took an investment. When when you and I think of parachurch ministries and I'm not trying to cast aspersions, but, you know, Crusade, Navigators, right. Precept, BSF, InterVarsity, they're great organizations, but they all seem to lack the ability, maybe except for the NAVs, to really reproduce disciples. I think to a certain degree, that's, some of that's true. Uh, there's some organizations I think do it much better than others. Um, otherwise, they don't survive long term. Uh, the local church, though, in my mind, is notorious at the—we we tend to make it preacher-centered, program-centered, yep. building-centered, and we're notorious at our inability to reproduce. 
uh, we're good at growth. We're not good at multiplication. Mm-hmm. And it's really the church in North America is about the only continent in the world that's not seeing um movements of multiplication. Um, we Global Youth Initiative, the ministry I lead, we're in about 117, 16 countries as of our last measurement with staff. And, and we've got multiplying movements in 67 of those countries. There really is multiplication happening, not growth, multiplication. And it's a very different dynamic when you create uh, disciples who know how to make disciples who can make disciples and you create a movement of multiplication. And to me, that's the grid of what Jesus told us to do. Um, it was not to go make, or the way I say it, it's not to go do discipleship. It's to go and make disciples of all people groups. And that literally means to make disciples to make disciples. At Southeast, where I'm doing consulting training here, we say you haven't made a disciple until they make a disciple. And that's the multiplication component. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, let's think about the the man, the woman in you know in a church context or a parachurch ministry, or maybe even a disenfranchised Christian who, you know, they they've done the church thing, they grew up in it. Uh, it is pastor centric. It is CEO. It is bigger, better, newer, more. It's buildings. And not that that's bad, but but he or she is a little disenfranchised with programs, a little disenfranchised with lack of depth cultures winning out. How do you, Dan, uh, tap into the, the, the handful to say you need to step up and become a disciple maker? That sounds overwhelming. It sounds like mm-hmm. I don't know how to do this. Uh, how do you help them? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, when I, when I talk investing in a few, Jesus did invest in a few, but he also ministered to the masses. So it's not an either or, it's a both end. Uh, but the the investing in a few was incredibly intentional on Jesus' part, and it was incredibly reproduction-oriented. I, I think the simplest thing for my grid, I love to go that John 17, the very last thing Jesus did, John 18, 1, it says he, he prayed this prayer, and then he crossed the Kidron and went and offered up his life as atonement. In that John 17, there are what I call seven I statements or seven disciplines of a disciple-maker. In Jesus' own words, here's how he did this. He says, I, I revealed the Father to them. I gave them the words you gave me. I prayed for them. I protected them. I sent them. I sanctified myself that they might be sanctified. I shared my glory with them. And, and when you take those seven I statements, anybody can do that. Anybody can find two or three people who want more or five people who want more, and do those seven I statements. And, and to me, that's disciple-making. We've made it much harder than it is. But, but Jesus was very intentional about teaching people to reproduce. Matter of fact, the only time you find Jesus full of joy by the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. Now, I believe he was always full of joy because Hebrews 1.9 says he was exalted above his companions with oil of gladness. Uh, he was very attractive to people because of his joy, even the lost people. But the one time you find him full of joy is in that Luke ten twenty one passage where he just sent out not the 12 apostles, which I call the elders of the church or the leaders. He sent out the 72, which are the lay people, the next generation. And they went out, preached the gospel, came back full of joy. And Jesus was full of joy, too. Why? Mm-hmm. Because his, again, his passion 
was not to reach the world. His passion was to make disciples capable of reaching the world. So his laser focus was on that reproduction. I think anybody can do it. You find a few, pour into them, and then teach them to pour into others. And people tend to reproduce what's been done to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when you choose, and you know, Cindy and I do a, a marriage mentor group. It's a two-year program. We do it in our home. We do it every Sunday night. And it's really marriage mentor. It's, it's under the guise of discipleship. <laughs> it's really right, not marriage right. mentoring. But what I find, you got to pursue these folks, even with a role like a pastor or a role like a leader. When we're talking to a doctor, an engineer, a, an educator, a, a, a stay-at-home mom, you know, how are they going to pursue folks and say, we want to get together on a regular basis, we want to study X, Y, Z things, we want to pray for the folks we're going to disciple? It just seems like it takes a lot more initiative and persistence than, say, come to church on Sunday. Yeah, well, and it's that's true. Uh, Jesus, when he saw Peter, says he renamed him. He saw the potential in him. He gave him a new identity. I, I love Paul when he writes to the Corinthians five times. He says, the Corinthian church had blown it more than anybody. I believe in you. I believe in you. He saw the potential. He says, I don't hold your sins against you. Uh, he perceived what they could become. He perceived their potential in Christ, uh, Christ in them. And then on the basis of that, you know, poured into people, invested in people. Who are the ones that have the potential? Who are the ones that the Spirit of God is drawing? And they're often not the most talented. They're not the richest. They're often the ones that are most teachable, most available, most faithful. Those are the ones that God loves to take and multiply his life through. Uh, I, I'm meeting today, right after this phone call, with a, a young guy, Shankar, who come, came out of the slums of India, grew up there, came to Christ radically. He now has 3,000 disciples right in the slums of Mumbai. Wow. And has a vision to reach 4.2 million Banjari people, the gypsies of India. And we've got him here because he just, off of the slums, amazing young man, but God got a hold of his life. And, and he's, he's just passionate about multiplication, and he's doing it. Um, you know, God loves to raise up those kinds of people. When I find that kind of person, I'll go to the wall for them. There's <laughs> sure. not a lot of them, but you don't need a lot of them. Right. I mean, we've got six continent leaders with Global Youth Initiative that are turning, you know, their world upside down because they understand disciple making. They understand multiplication. And uh, I'll go to the wall for those kinds of people. When you look across the, uh, and I don't necessarily like the labels, but the builder, the boomer, yuppie, you know, Gen X, next gen, millennials, it, right. is there a different tact or a different attitude that you have to take? I think there is. Um, it's interesting. Uh, the millennials, believe it or not, are just finished college. They're looking for a cause. I, I love how Paul, the last verse in the book of Acts says he, he preached the kingdom and taught about Jesus. Millennials need the kingdom preached to them. They need to catch the cause, the vision, the picture of that coming kingdom, that now but not yet kingdom. At least that's my experience. The Gen Z, which are very different than the millennial, that's the younger group, um, they're really anti-corporate more than even the millennials were. And they 
they need Jesus preached to them. They need to see uh, the freshness of the uniqueness of of Jesus in his full humanity when he walked on this earth. Um, My big thing is I find most Americans, we've got this Superman view of Jesus. And I write about this in the Four Chair Discipling book. He looks human, but when he goes into a phone booth, sucks on that kryptonite, comes out with a cape, he does a miraculous. And and that is a faulty view. Therefore, when Jesus said 40 times, do what I've done, walk as I walk, follow a pattern I gave you, and you can do what I did. No, you can even do greater things. We back up and say that can't be true because we've got a faulty view of the fully human Jesus. I call him the I-Jesus. You know, I have iPhone, iPad, the I-Jesus, the incarnate Jesus. Uh, what was he like when he walked on this earth? The real Jesus that walked on this earth. The, mm-hmm. the one people, you know, nobody was drawn to him. He he was not six foot five, tall, dark, and handsome. He, he was, wasn't? He wasn't? <laughs> at least he didn't have blue eyes, I don't think. I agree. Uh, you know, the kind of person everybody in his hometown said, I knew he was going to be the Messiah. Yeah, no, right. they, they wanted to throw him off the cliff. They, they were the last to believe in him because he was so average in a physical sense. Mm-hmm. But Gen Z, I find, really need to get back to the real Jesus that walked on this earth, not our Superman that we've made him out to be. That's good. That's good. Talk to us about the four-chair discipleship model you developed. Give us an overview. Uh, it really came about when I was teaching the elders here at Southeast Christian. It's kind of a mega church in Louisville, Kentucky. I could tell they weren't getting the life of Christ the way I had been teaching it for years. And so I just randomly grabbed four chairs and said, let's use these four chairs to represent the four challenges of how Jesus so masterfully took seekers and turned them into reproducing disciple makers. And I said four challenges. Challenge one, Jesus said, come and see, John 1. And then follow me, John 1 also. And then follow me, I'll make you fishers of men 18 months into it when he invested in five, not the 12 yet, but five. He said, follow me, I'll teach you to reproduce. I'll make you fishers of men. And then the last challenge was now go and reproduce or go and bear fruit. And we just look at those four chairs as four challenges and uh, talked about barriers between the chairs, why some people get stuck in chair two and never move to chair three, and how does chair four differ from chair three and chair three differ from chair two, and what are the needs of a disciple at each, each stage of that journey? Chair one being the seeker, chair two being the believer, Chair three being the worker, chair four being the friend of God or the disciple maker. And and when I used that metaphor, the four chairs, immediately everybody that just stuck. They mm. began to ask the right questions. Everybody began talking about four chairs. They began to say, wow, what chair am I in? Am I sitting in now? And how do I get to the next chair? Uh, what chair is my friend in? How do I help my friend move to the next chair? So we ended up putting that in a book and had lots and lots of people um, saying, basically, we want to become a four-chair disciple-making church. Okay, last question. Let's say you, you know, you've got people that you've chosen and uh, somebody's not, they're not showing up, not responding. Do you disinvite them? I always say it this way. You, you challenge people to get to chair four, but you give them grace to settle in at whatever chair they're at now. Some people are not ready to move to chair three, the worker, 
uh, servant, uh, sacrificial giving chair. Um, and so they need, we need to allow grace to let them settle back to chair two, where it's basically just, you know, show up, uh, be under God's grace, come to church, listen to his word. And, you know, so I think I like to say we challenge them to the next level, but we give them grace to settle back at the level where they seem to be most comfortable at this point. And so disinvite, yes, or sometimes you have to disinvite people. Um, especially if they're in more of a, a leadership role rather than a worker role, but you have to disinvite. And so that needs to be done courageously because you reproduce what you are. Mm. And if you put people in leadership that are truly not reproducing disciple makers, then you reproduce what you are. It's just always the pattern of God's DNA. Final thought? Uh, it's it's a journey. A disciple making is the greatest adventure in the world. I'm a pig farmer from South Dakota, and uh, I'm not very smart. I'm an average guy. I love Jesus with my whole heart and soul, but somebody plugged me into disciple making when I was 20 years old, Life of Christ. And I know this works because there are disciples all over the globe, not because of me, but because multiplication works. And that's why Jesus said, do what I've done. No, you can even do greater things than I've done. Um, it, it works. It is the process God wants us to, to follow. Dan Spader, founder and director of Sun Life Ministries, has been a consultant to some 18-plus denominations, now spending this chapter of his life on making disciples around the globe. Dan, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Blessings. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.